Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And I uh, had a little break there, had a little bit of time off, just been getting my head around what I need to be doing for 2021. Some very interesting things coming up, which I'll be sharing with you a little bit later on. But I thought we'd jump into this A is for anchoring thing, which I discussed before things dried up a couple of weeks ago. Um, I got a lot of interest from people writing to me about that. I was trying to work out exactly how to do it. Um, I've done quite a few podcasts which are based on me transferring as much information as possible to you, things I've researched, looked up. I sit here with my computers, but it occurs to me that there's an interesting opportunity here to try and um, uncover something. So there's a difference always in different fields of study between someone who's amateur and someone who's professional. In some areas, this can mean that the professionals are professionally good at looking up the facts. If you're a lawyer or a doctor, one of the skill sets that you really look to develop is fantastic skills in research and working the library and pulling out information. And if someone asks you a question on the fly, very rarely are they expecting you to come up with the answer if that question regards something um, uh, you know, quite wide, quite wide as a subject matter. For professional sailors, the idea is that we suddenly have all of this information implanted into our heads and we are not going to be running back to the wheelhouse to have a look at a book. Now, I have to say I've spent many happy anchor watches in the Merchant Navy and in the military reading uh, NP100. Am I getting that right? Nautical Publication 100. Yeah, it's the Mariner's Handbook, the blue one, which is normally on the top shelf in the bridge somewhere, and you get super bored and you've read everything that you thought you had to read. Maybe it's not the same now because everyone's got, you know, mobile phones and, and tablets with them, and there's just an inexhaustible supply of things to read and look at. But certainly when I think about my time coming up through the industry, sitting on Anchor Watch, reading about uh, the light characteristics of um, hydrofoils or submarines or uh, Persane trawlers, you know, this was, this was the big thing, finding out the difference between uh, pancake ice and growlers and whatever other kind of bits of ice formation there were. The MP100 was something to remind you of those details you're meant to know, but uh, I've probably <laughs> forgotten about as the years have gone past. So I think the challenge to me with this A is for anchoring thing is what's in my head without uh, looking online. Um, anchoring is something which we have to do all the time. There are definitely more or less efficient ways of doing it. There are definitely ways of doing it which are hyper dangerous. So this is not meant to be a session based on what's the absolute up-to-date decimal point uh, details of the situation. This is more like if you and I walk up to the bow of the boat and we're doing anchoring and you're saying, hey, you know, what's your kind of take on this? This is what I would say without reference. So if there's errors in here, uh, feel free to write to me. I will then choose if I want to, <laughs> to, to write back or to include what you say. Um, I would like to include uh, one detail which was sent to me and it kind of really spurred the beginning of this uh, A is for anchoring idea. Um, I had already mooted the idea that I would be talking about anchoring and then I had someone write to me who had a point to make, which was so beautifully detailed and to the point that I thought, you know what, 
um, I want to include that thing. So there's only one thing which I'm including in this, which is a, uh, a particular detail. And that was something that was put to me by uh, a chap called Warren Mangan. Um, and he wrote to me about a specific thing about scope. So when we get to that, I'm going to bring up Warren's points. But other than that, it is purely off the cuff for me. So anchoring, let's get ourselves a coffee. Let's go up to the bow, sit in the night's heads, put our feet on the windlass, and let's have a chat about anchoring. So I guess the first thing about anchoring from my point of view is that it is a resource which I always have at the bottom of the toolbox for emergencies, but then I often do use it uh, regularly in the normal course of work. There's kind of, in my mind, two sorts of anchoring. There's Anchoring A, which is when you just pull into a bay and it's nice and quiet and it's nice and flat. And the idea is to secure the boat for a little while uh, so that you can go and hang out on the shore or you can go and visit other boats or you can just get a snooze or do whatever it is you're going to do. This is a low stress anchoring situation where most people, as long as you get the anchor to the seabed, are going to have success. It, it doesn't require any effort whatsoever. So we are going to, of course, look to be in a, an area where the boat cannot swing into other boats. It cannot swing into impediments, whether it be a, a jetty or a shore or rocks or anything else. And we are going to pop the anchor down. We're going to put a certain amount of chain out. And um, that's about it. Now, how can I dare to say that that is anchoring? Well, you know what? Sometimes when you know a lot about a subject, it can end up that you realize that some, some varieties of and some versions of, you know, operating this skill set do not require much effort. If you are in an area where it doesn't blow during the period of time that you are anchoring, there is no tidal movement, there are maybe no even other boats around, um, you don't really need to concentrate that hard on anchoring. There's a heavy thing down there. It's got a load of heavy chain attached to it. It's attached to the boat. That's going to get you by most of the time. The danger is if that's what you think anchoring is, because just chucking stuff on the bottom, Popeye style, as we all know, is not really going to work very well. So I would say dropping the, the lunch hook, that is a style of anchoring, which you know, you can get less experienced people to go and do, and then they feel that they're very uh, much operating that, uh, th that piece of equipment and they're, they're engaged in that evolution uh, completely independently. And there's no need to get like super stressed about it. We talk a lot on this podcast about, you know, interacting with each other in a, in a fair and reasonable way and not shouting each other and having respect. How much better to get somebody interested in anchoring and happy to operate the equipment than to just allow them to engage in a low stress, we'll call it like type A anchoring situation, um, without you being there, like looking over their shoulder. The question is, how do we use this equipment to get the boat to stay in position securely when the wind speed comes up and now it's north of 30 knots and now it's north of 40 knots and now if that anchor chain breaks or if that uh, anchor gives way, the vessel will be lost and great harm, uh, grave and imminent danger will ensue to, to the crew. So dropping the hook is something if you sail with children, they can do. They can then swim down and have a look at it. 
If you've got new people on the boat, they can let it out. It's heaps of fun. There goes the chain rattling out. There's things dropping. It's like for people that are new to sailing, it's, it's a fun aspect of it. Like they're kind of doing a real nautical thing. And then after they've got used to that, in some very benign situations, we can start to include other information. So where does anchoring begin? Well, again, I'm not reading this off a computer, so I'll just give you my kind of version of it. Um, the earliest kind of anchors that we know of are literally anchoring stones. Um, as you know, I love to go off on tangents. One of the um, conspiracy slash uh, mystery things, which I've been made aware of in the, the last couple of years, is the fact that there is a giant fossilized boat um, up in, is it like, I think it's like Kyrgyzstan or something like it's some it's one of the stands and it's like in the middle of nowhere and the chit chat from those who are researching this thing is is this the ark the ark from biblical times it didn't go aground on Mount Ararat that it went aground in somewhere completely different now on the face of it that would seem completely ridiculous we must always bear in mind that the bible is one of the oldest pieces of written text in the western world after Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey but uh, beyond that, there's a lot mixed into it, which has been put there over time by political structures and religious structures. But the ark and the giant big boat thing, there's a number of people pointing to the fact that it could have been possible. You could build a wooden vessel up to 300 foot. There's actually a Sanskrit uh, text which tells a very similar story, but predates the Bible story by a couple of thousand years. So the idea that there's been giant floods, perhaps from meteor impacts or from um, huge tectonic eruptions, tsunamis, that kind of thing, is possible. It's possible that there were big boats already in existence or that somehow somebody got an idea that something was going to happen and they built a big boat. Well, one of these theories, one of these things, is that this boat is up in the highlands of wherever it is in Kyrgyzstan or Turkmenistan. This is kind of like a discussion like we used to have in a pub. You remember you used to go to a pub and people used to tell you stuff? That's what it is. I'm not looking at a computer. If we need details, you, you tell me about it. You can have a look online. Uh, giant preserved wood or, or petrified wood rather up in the highlands of Habitahabitistan, okay? Well, one of the things that points to the fact that this may have a Mediterranean uh, origin and that it may well be a boat and not just some weird fossilized layer of fallen trees in the earth is that in the local villages thereabouts, they have found Mediterranean style anchor stones. So an anchor stone would be kind of like tombstone size, probably a lot thicker, heavier at the bottom. And they have some kind of hole drilled into the top of it, not by some kind of like tubular drill or anything uh, particularly fancy, but just worked through the top of it. And the ones which they found in Turkestan or Kyrgyzstan or wherever it is that we're talking about here, maybe I should find out where it is. Um, they have crosses on them, which they then point to the fact that this was, you know, from Christians of uh, an era, a couple of thousand or more years ago. So these anchor stones have been preserved and they've also been found all the way across the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, the simplest way to anchor a boat is to get a big heavy weight, have it on the deck and put it over the side and have something attached to it, whether it be a rope or chain or anything else. And then the boat can only pull at it a certain you know amount and then the thing finds a natural resting place on the bottom or a wedge or a crevice or a bit of coral or what have you and then you don't really go any further now 
obviously as we have modern anchors and we know all about catenary and we know all about pulling angles and we're immediately thinking that you know a giant tombstone made of even granite or something is probably not going to be that much use so if you're not just going to rely on weight to hold a ship then or a boat or any kind of craft then you have to start to design something which is going to do a better job than weight so one thing we can mention at this point is that different materials have different densities and when they're underwater they then uh, displace you know different amounts of water they have different amounts of weight when they're underwater and in terms of just weighing something down something like granite would be holding about 60% of its uh, weight underwater as opposed to concrete that's holding 50% of its weight underwater so if you want to increase the usability of an anchoring stone or something heavy choose something very dense so these days we can use metal so okay so our new thing instead of using a stone might be a giant hunk of metal well in element it, it, or rather in essence the the elements of anchoring do you know use some weight it doesn't matter now that we are talking about design you're not going to fix some 50 foot boat that weighs 40,000 kilos to the bottom with something that is extraordinarily light there's going to be some weight in there but if we haven't really looked at the physics of anchoring before the thought might be just that the weight of the stuff on the bottom is such a, a hobble to the boat that it can't get about now what we start to realize very quickly is that if we can hook into some kind of bottom contour um, some kind of crevice in the rock as I say or coral then um, we can have a much better anchoring experience and that's where we get the very first kind of what we might call like a fisherman's anchor it's the it's the classic Popeye anchor it's got um, a curved bottom piece which has got little flukes on the end of it which help it to dig in a little bit and it's got a, a main stock running up the center which is uh, attaching those flukes to the chain and then it may well have a shaft running across it at the top uh, a stock which is going to then be uh, orientated at a 90 degrees to the flukes at the bottom so that when this thing starts to move around on the bottom it naturally trips into a position where it digs itself in a little bit so the classic uh, uh, fisherman pattern or around here we call it a, a, a schooner pattern anchor is a very simple device which is the the classic kind of style of anchor back in the day chain would have been something which was extraordinarily expensive it was extraordinarily hard to produce it was extraordinarily um, uh, difficult to store on board the boat and then you would have to make a decision and so i guess you'd have to make a decision about how much chain you're going to carry a lot of the original like navy style uh, anchors they were literally just a hawser tied onto the uh, top of the anchor or secured rather onto the top of the anchor so they were very much relying on the uh, style of anchor to dig into the bottom as best it possibly could and to find some kind of stone or something rather that it could hook onto and then the ship would be anchored by that that's the simplest way to kind of if we're not going to just deal with weight on the bottom then the easiest thing to believe is that it's kind of like a fish hook down there that's going to attach us to the bottom the problem starts to come in that you need a pretty big heavy piece of uh, uh, ironwork to go down to the bottom to have enough 
mass when it's underwater that it will then start to dig itself in, particularly if you're letting out a rope between the anchor and the ship and that the ship's movement up and down and the, the length of rope that's available means that that anchor is going to be pulled uh, up quite a lot as well as along the bed. These days when we talk about anchoring, we're looking at how we can trip the anchor. We can lift up the anchor and lever it out of the bottom where it's dug itself in with a newer design, and then we can pull it back to the surface. If you only have rope attached to your anchor, and maybe you don't have that much rope, it's not quite a deep anchorage, you're in a situation where you are forever about to trip the anchor. So it's not too difficult to start to imagine the development of the anchor when people started to realize that uh, if we've got more rope out, now we could say line, of course, so there's no ropes on a boat. Technically, people say there's no ropes on a boat. What is it apart from the bell rope and the something else people always go on about this, that every other rope on a boat has got a name. If you work in the Merchant Navy, let me tell you, there's a lot of things have got the word rope in them. <laughs> so I never have too much of a worry calling something with a rope when it could be a hawser, it could be a line, it could be whatever. We all know where we're at. Let's not get tripped over in this pursuit by following the dogma of, um, of, of jargon. What we want to be able to do is communicate clearly. So we got some rope. <laughs> it's out the front of the boat. It's attached to a kind of fish hooky thing, which is on the bottom. And we've developed over, you know, a couple of, well, they always say with this stuff, don't they? It's like over centuries it was developed. And yeah, I think about it in my own lifetime, like you start to develop things quite quickly. I do sometimes wonder if our idea of how fast humans develop is a little bit skewed you know they say like if you were setting off from Norway to explore points west then you would discover um, Iceland and then it would take you like centuries before you get to Nova Scotia where I think well in a lifetime you'd probably go hmm Iceland awesome I wonder what's next oh Greenland awesome what's next Labrador brilliant let's go south you'd probably get it done in quite a short amount of time I wonder if it's the same with anchoring and points uh, within seamanship that um, it doesn't necessarily take forever to work this stuff out. But clearly they had uh, mostly metal anchors and they were tied onto uh, an older style cordage, whether it's manila or hemp or, uh, or sisal based ropes. So they start to realize after a while that if you have more rope out and the hook is hooked in pretty good on the bottom, more rope will allow the anchor to stay hooked in and you won't trip it too early. So in the earliest evolution of anchoring, we've got away from rope, uh, sorry, from weights and we've got a kind of hook thing going on, fine. We're using a heavy material in iron because it's got better um, negative buoyancy characteristics when it's on the seabed. And we've worked out relatively quickly that if we have a lot of rope, a lot of anchor warp out the front of the boat, then it tends not to trip and it holds better. So brains then start to go to work and realize like, hang on, if we can maybe lower something down the anchor warp, it will create more of a horizontal pull on this pick and then maybe it's not going to pull as easily. And that might be the origin point of putting, people will call it an angel weight or call it a, a kellet, but it's something that you run down the anchor warp. Easier to do a little bit with warp than, than chain and more suited to a uh, to warp that perhaps than chain. But it's a weight which is suspended from some kind of 
you know, I guess these days carabiner or shackle or, or loop or something, some something that allows it to attach onto your ankle warp. Back in the day, it could be a big iron ring or something. Um, and then you have another rope and you lower this thing down your anchor rope and it sits on the bottom. Maybe it's a, you know, a couple of a hundred foot or a couple of couple of hundred feet back from the anchor on your warp. And then when the boat starts to pull on the anchor warp, it's going to try and lift that weight, that kellet up off the bottom. And it's going to be a little bit hard for it to do that because the kellet is creating a vector load. So when else do we see this kind of loading on a boat? Well, if you're sweating a halyard at the mast, obviously the jib or the headsail, whatever it is, is somewhat movable. It's heavy, but it's movable. And then you're in the middle and you're pulling that halyard away from the mast to, to sweat it up. And the other end is on the winch and is immovable. It, your friend can tail it in, but essentially it's immovable. So one end of the line is movable, one end of the line is not movable, and you're pulling in the center and you're pulling this thing into a V shape. And that V shape multiplies your efforts by about uh, 1.4 times. So uh, vector loading applied to a... Uh, a line that you want to move makes you stronger. A kellet attached to your anchor cre creates a vector loading in the line and it's harder for the boat to pull it into a horizontal line again than, or into a line, it doesn't be horizontal, obviously it'd be a bit of an angle between the boat and the anchor, but it's harder for it to get it in line than you might expect because the weight has been multiplied by about 1.4 times. So you put 30 kilos down there, suddenly you've got like nearly 45 kilos down there. Awesome. All right. So it's working to your advantage. But, you know, callets and lowering them up and down and you lose them, they get stuck on the ankle. Like it's all complex. Like how could we make this better? And of course, that's when chain starts to come in. And I'm not sure exactly what is the origin point of chain. Does it start on ships? Does it start on lifting up portcullises i don't know like <laughs> what's the origin of cha well, chain mail that's making little loops of things you make bigger and bigger loops i can kind of see how that would happen but there'd be all sorts of places where you need to have something that's stronger than rope rope at the time would have been based on natural fibers of course so making a rope essentially out of metal there's no way they would have the ability to um create like ductile wire out of out of metal so they made loops of it and they catch the loops together and you know uh, that's it you got yourself a chain right now they start to realize hang on if we take this and we put it onto the back of the anchor if we attach it onto the anchor stock suddenly we've got this heavy rope this heavy metal rope this heavy connector between the anchor and the boat and the it's because of its own weight, it's going to want to lie on the seabed pretty much. And then it will gently curve up from the seabed to the front of the boat at the point at which, you know, it must then go up to the vessel. It can't obviously just, it's attached to the boat. It's going to come straight down from the boat and then curve across and then get horizontal and go out towards the anchor. So once they started to do that, even though they've just got a very basic iron pick digging with small flukes into whatever's the bottom, whether it be mud or shale or whatever it is, um, it's going to have a lot more holding power than either the stones or the rope only uh, versions of anchoring that had been done before. So success, okay? It's all looking pretty good. Now, back in the day with anchors, 
anchors would be stored at the front of the vessel. I think it's worth talking about that a little bit because otherwise it's all going to get a bit dry and uh, there'd be, you know, no tangents. <laughs> this is almost a kind of uh, useful tangent. It's talking about anchoring. It's talking about old boats. So they'd be up at the front of the boat and um, they would, uh, you'd have the, the hawse pipe at the front, the, the anchor hawse, the, 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 the cable which is attached to the anchor comes up through the hawse pipe at the front. And if you've been listening to my reading of uh, Joshua Slocum's um, book, Sailing uh, Alone Around the World, he has a phrase in that which uh, he says he came to be the master of the ship, that he came in over the bows or in through the hawse pipe. So literally um, that they would be the most experienced um, uh, officers would be those who had done the work from the very, very uh, most basic job on board. And the most basic job that would be on board a boat at any time in the past would be being uh, a kid on board the boat and being a nipper. And we've talked about this before. The way that the anchor would come into the vessel, you'd have a capstan at the front. A capstan is a vertical turning drum, which is powered either by manual means or these days by electronic means or hydraulic means. Um, and it's a uh, interacts with and controls lines. It doesn't have to just be the anchor. You can use capstan for all sorts of rope handling, but obviously if you bring up the anchor, the capstan's where it's gonna be at. So the capstan bars would go in and anywhere between four, eight, 10, depends how big it was, uh, men or crew would get onto these bars. Could be singles, could be in doubles, depending again how big the anchor is. And they would start to then stamp the capstan round. Now the capstan did not interact directly with the anchor. There was a rope, a line that went around the capstan, wrapped four or five times around the capstan. Actually, that's a lie. It was wrapped three times around the capstan. And then it went forward to a turning block and came back to the capstan. The way that the anchor hawse interacted with this line that's being turned around and around by those working the capstan is that the anchor hawse was laid parallel to this capstan line and then children would put a little like seizing between the anchor hawse and this line that's going around the capstan in a continuous loop. As the capstan was stamped around, a multiple series of nips between the anchor hawse and the capstan line would then cause the uh, anchor hawse to be drawn into the vessel as the capstan was stamped around. The same children would then undo the nip which is you know, at the point where the anchor hawse needs to go on its way and the capstan line needs to go back to the capstan, they'd undo that nip and then scurry forward to put a new nip on as the anchor line came up through the hawse pipe. So there would be a continuous movement of small children operating between the sailor's feet to get this anchor line connected to and partnered with the uh, capstan line. And then that process of keep undoing and redoing the, the nips, as they were called, would bring the anchor hawse into the boat. And that is why we call children nippers, because that was their job on the boat to provide the nips as they were bringing up the anchor. The anchor would then get to a position where it was out of the water, but its stock was right next to the hawse pipe. How do you then get it up to the vessel? Well, it would be uh, fished from the water. So uh, block and tackle, a block and tackle, if you're going to put it in old pronunciation, would be lowered down and secured onto one of the flukes of the anchor. Um, and then it would be uh, fished up and lifted up from the vertical position to the near horizontal position. And then it would be secured into position at the knight's heads. So it would be um, fished and then it would be 
catted, and catted is when it is brought into its final resting place alongside the vessel. Am I getting that right? I think so. You cat and then fish and anchor. Hmm, maybe I'm getting my phrases back to front there. Well, we're, not, we're doing it without the computer. Like, my God, we're in open water here. Like, it could be catted, it could be fished. Between those two, you cat and fish the anchor. So I'm thinking for a second that maybe catting comes first, but I don't know. We're down the pub here. <laughs> we are sitting in our little metaphorical situation uh, just at the anchor having a chat. So you'll have to go and find out which one it is. But now you find there's something called catting and something called fished. And that's how you'd bring the anchor up to a horizontal stored position alongside the bows of the boat ready to be deployed in the future. That system worked very, very well, obviously, for hundreds of years. Um, it was easy to stamp out those shapes. The ship certainly needed big anchors. The uh, chain that they had was limited in a, in a way to a certain amount of uh, links that would be attached to the uh, anchor itself. Very difficult to handle those around the uh, capstan as it was. So it wasn't really until you start to get the development of the windlass in the way that we think of it now, and particularly the chain gypsy that would, uh, that would handle chain, that we can get onto all chain uh, hawes on on ships or all chain um, uh, ground tackle, I guess is the best way of putting it, on ships. These days, as we start to work with um, boats more and more, I see a, a big trend now that even quite small yachts have all chain on board. People like freak out about anchoring uh, to the point that if you're gonna get down that path of like, you have to have it all absolutely perfect the way it's got to be, which, you know, I stand behind that. It means that vessels which are kind of small in the in the fashion of vessels that used to ply the world's waters a 30 foot or 40 foot sailboat is a pretty small boat and now those boats have full chain ground tackle on board the boat now that's awesome if you're going to go into a difficult anchoring situation i have no problem with that but back in the day maybe there was a bit more of a mixed um situation going on with the ground tackle we'd have chain and then road and there are some be uh, benefits of that the first one we could deal with here is the fact that it's obviously a lot lighter if you're carrying hundreds of feet of chain in the front of the boat you are carrying the weight of hundreds of feet of chain in the boat and for most people it's dropping down into an anchor locker which is just beneath the foredeck and that can mean that you've got a hell of a lot of weight in the bows now as racers we always try and avoid weight in the bows if you're a cruiser, you might say, well, weight in the bow gives the boat the ability to punch into the waves. Well, it, it certainly does, but it also creates a situation where the boat starts to pitch a lot more than it might do otherwise. And then you can start to get into a boat which, yes, the weight of the chain pushes the bow into the water, but then the buoyancy of the water in the next wave lifts it up, whereupon the weight of the chain slams the bow back down again and the thing starts to Pug, well, not pugwash exactly, because that's kind of getting stuck on waves with old-fashioned boat, but certainly a pugwash-type action where you're going up and down on the same wave and not really getting forward. So you're always trying to keep weight out of the bows if you can, but whether it be a mixed chain combination, mixed rope and chain combination, or chain alone, uh, the modern gear for handling anchors obviously has improved much from people stamping around with children tying things on to uh, uh, you know, secure the anchor warp onto your capstan line. Now, of course, we've got windlasses, which is a horizontally rotating 
uh, uh, rope handler and inboard of those drums on the windlass or individual drum if it's a smaller one you'll have i think in north america it's called a wildcat and in europe we call it a gypsy and that is a shaped um what would you call that like a, a, a sculpted collar that runs around the inside of that uh that winching drum that you see on the side of the windlass and it is perfectly um, configured to take a particular size of chain once the correct size of chain is uh, is selected, it has very positive engagement with the chain and it's able to drag the chain into the boat very, very efficiently. Um, let's have a quick think for a second about uh, what happens if you've got a mixed situation between rope and chain. Oftentimes what you'll find is that there's a groove running down the center of the wildcat, which will allow for rope to be handled by it by the gypsy, by the wildcat, and then chain to be taken on thereafter. So if you have a look at the, the windlass you've got, it'll either be for chain only, or it'll be for chain and road, which in which case got this cut out down the center of it. For the boats I've had in the 30 to 40 foot range, I would say having the benefit of mixed uh, mixed chain and rope is that the, there are benefits there. As I say, it's lighter, it's easier and cheaper to replace quite regularly. If you get into a situation where you're going to have to let the whole lot run out and then cut something free, it's obviously much easier to cut because the end of it's rope. Equally, if you get into a situation where you're in a pickle and you need to add stuff to it, you can actually add on to a, a road quite easily. And I've been in some pretty drastic situations um, where I've had to well, maybe that's how I could uh, I could get away from it being too much of a, uh, a reciting of facts and, and put some uh, some experience in this. I once had a an experience in in Hong Kong. I was running uh, an expedition in a thirty six foot open boat on one of the outer bound schools uh, catches. Um, we had about well, I have 12, 12 participants on board and two experienced uh, instructor uh, seafarers on board the boat. We were out on the high seas in terms of what that boat could take, but in fact, it was inside just a very large bay with about a I don't know ten kilometer wide mouth on it, um, and the boats never went outside that. But when strong circumstances used to blow up, when the northeast monsoon used to blow in Hong Kong, you'd end up in a situation where quite large waves could start pummeling into this bay, and then you could end up in a situation where these boats, which were sail training vessels, very broad, very bluff in the bow, um, they could start to really sort of struggle. They didn't have the ability to go upwind at all to get back to the base. So this one night, um, let me see, how did it start? Uh, well, the speedboat from the Outbound School came over to us. It was about 2003, so mobile phones were definitely part of the uh, scene, but only really had been in general use uh, for operations for maybe like three or four years. So there was still a bit of a return always to, you know, getting somebody onto the scene to transmit information if you needed to. So we'd already got the call that there was a lot of weather coming in and then a speedboat appears in the darkness with another one of the senior instructors on board who jumps on board to tell us that indeed a major depression is making its way towards us and we need to seek a uh, safe, safe harbor or a safe anchorage. So we start to blow along and there's a bit of a argy-bargy backwards and forwards that I kind of wasn't involved in where they decided uh, in in Cantonese that there was going to be a tow happen. <laughs> so like, okay, let's see how this goes. So the boat itself weighs, I don't know, like five tons and it's got 12 people on board. So we're up in the 
and probably with food and everything, seven, seven and a half thousand kilos here. Very bluff bow. Seas are starting to get up to maybe three, four foot, something like that. And the idea that that is uh, mooted and uh, and pushed about in, in, in another language is that there's going to be a line thrown and the boats can be taken under tow. Well, it's a speedboat with a 90 horsepower engine on the back. It's a Gemini. And um, what seemed to kind of get missed in the translation was the fact that it has a high speed propeller on it. So a high speed propeller on an outboard engine um, is not much good for trying to tow something heavy. All that happens is the propeller starts to turn. It hasn't got that much grip. It starts to aerate the back of the tow boat starts to squat and then nothing really happens. There's a lot of noise, there's a lot of frothing and there's not really much power. Certainly not enough power to pull this boat upwind for what would have been like, I know, five or six miles back to the school. So that gets the line gets like cast off without any further instructions. And then we go broadside to the wind and then set off helter skelter back downwind. Now, these boats with the catch rig, obviously, you've got your mizzen. Some people are big fans of mizzen sails. I would say this to be a big fan of it, you probably need to get to know how to use it. Um, it can be an incredibly useful piece of equipment having a mizzen mast on a boat and a, and a mizzen sail on the boat. The problem can be that when you are in a running situation and you're trying to use that sail for drive, if it's out on the port side, it'll try and turn the boat to starboard. If it's out on the starboard side, it's gonna try and turn the boat to port. So very quickly, um, started to realize that this, this isn't gonna fly. Between the absolute square back on this boat and this little mizzen sail pushing us around, um, we, we are not gonna be able to control this boat. We, just, we, could, we had a bit of a go at trying to sail upwind with it, but it just wasn't enough tension in the rigging. It's just not that kind of boat. It's not designed to beat upwind. It's designed to give a sail training experience to people for a week with amateur skill sets. So it's not gonna beat back up this and running along with this mizzen up and there was hardly any control. So the mizzen came down and then that left us with a heavily reefed mainsail. The wind's blowing maybe like 35, 40 knots now. People are starting to get a little bit nervous, you know, in the in the crew, in the participants inside the boat. They're all hunkered down. They've got their life jackets on um, and we have a support boat still alongside us. So the basic kind of structure of how we're going to sort out this, uh, the end of this exercise uh, was not formed by those who had come to help us. Uh, the tow hadn't worked. Uh, the idea of sailing the boat off to a particular harbor they had in mind was not going to happen because we just got blown kind of whichever way the wind wanted to send us. Um, so I started to ask them about, okay, what's the options for mooring boys further down the coast? Because we've got about another mm, three or four miles of coast, and then we're going to get blown out into the South China Sea, which at which point it's going to get a lot more complicated. So uh, indeed, one of the instructors says just around the corner, there's a mooring. So I'm like, brilliant. This is what we're going to do. So we start to set ourselves up for quite a close approach to this uh, little promontory. Now, I should add at this point that this is an open sail training boat. Um, we absolutely were adhering to all the safety guidelines laid down by Outward Bound in Hong Kong, Outward Bound International and the Hong Kong uh, Department of Transport, but we only had like a small handheld GPS that gave position. We had a chart, we had, uh, you know, like dividers and pencils and like super basic stuff, right? There's no like chart plotters or phones with Google Earth or, or Navionics on board. It was paper charts and it was very windy and there's no cabin. And um, so there's lots of pointing and shouting, which of course is what these things always end up at. So 
in the uh, it was a, a kind of a wild and brillig night, you know, uh, but we ended up coming busting down the Saigon Peninsula until we got to about the Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. And there's a little bay beneath that called, I believe, Silver, Silvermine Bay. I think it's called Silvermine Bay. We hooked around this corner in this catch, which was now probably running at about the highest speed it ever done in its life, um, came screaming into the bay. Um, and I had asked the speedboat to check, is there another boat on this mooring? As we screeched around the corner, there was definitely no boat on the mooring. Problem was there was no mooring. <laughs> so I have now completely committed to this bay. <laughs> it's got a little bit of shelter. I think the wind was coming from the northeast and the promontory on the north side of the bay ran uh, west east. So as I hooked around, uh, I was running. I then came onto a kind of bit of a beam reach. And uh, as I pummeled into the bay, realized there's no options here at all. So this boat's not really going to like come up and tack. We're just drifting. There is a speedboat there that can kind of hold us a little bit, but there's no there's no real option. So the call went out, we're going to drop anchor. So the boat had on board a, let me get this right. It had a, yeah, it had a CQR anchor as its bow line, as its, as its bow anchor, sorry. And it had a smaller Danforth anchor at the back. So we can introduce these kinds of anchors. So the CQR anchor, which is sold uh, as a, a three letter play on sounds, I guess, not play on words, but play on sounds, literally secure anchor, CQR. Um, it has a long, um, a long shaft, which is where your chain's connected. It then has a hinging joint, which goes down to uh, a main fluke that digs into the uh, seabed, which looks exactly like a plowshare. Okay, so it's got a plow shape, it's got a hinge, and then it's got a stock on the back of it, which when the plow is in the ground dug in, that arching hinge and, and, and stock arrangements means that the uh, anchor chain is attached about two feet down from where the tip of the plow is under the dirt. So it's a very good uh, anchor at digging down into sand, digging down into mud, and then that plowing effect pulls it further and further and further into the dirt, making it like really lock up in there. So down goes the CQR anchor. Now, the rules as we've kind of described them to date, if we're not going to chuck a rock underwater and we're not going to put an iron like fish hook down underwater, to try and hook a, uh, a rock, we need to then get into this thing of the pulling on the anchor as horizontally as possible. The key thing with anchors is that whatever the mechanism is on the end of the anchor, it is pulling horizontally through the mud, through the dirt, through the sand, through the shell, whatever it is on the seabed. If it cannot do that, it will trip, it will skip, it will not hold in the way that it should. All developments of modern anchors, whatever shape they are, is about getting the head of the anchor to dig into the seabed, whatever that seabed may be. The CQR anchor does a pretty good job of that. I'm not saying it's the best in the world, but it's pretty darn good. And I would say also that in 2003, when this happened, or whatever it was, 2003, 2005, um, the CQR anchor would be one of the best, you know, Time rolls along, design rolls along, materials roll along, and the ability for computers to check 
details um, for design processes to assess uh, flaws and, and problems. And also just real world testing has given us better and better designs. But CQR is a pretty good way to go. So it goes over the front and it has what ubiquitously is called a an appropriate amount of chain. So if you would do any racing, you will often find that they say um, you must have an anchor, an anchor warp and an appropriate amount of chain on board. So, um, I have had some interesting experiences with this. I remember once racing on a boat in, I think it was Hong Kong, actually, not sure. Um, they had a fortress anchor, which we'll kind of get round to that, but it's an aluminum anchor. It's made of aluminum and then it, uh, it has a nice shape to it, which digs it in, but it's very, very light. So racers love them. You can take it all in pieces, disassemble it, put it in a bag, and you don't even have like a complicated anchor to, to store how useful this is for anchoring. Eh, not that useful. What made the particular setup on this boat I was racing on interesting is that when I went to check as part of whatever it was I was doing, safety checks, for the appropriate length of chain, there was indeed 35 foot of chain on board, on board this 35 foot boat, which would be considered an appropriate amount of chain. The length of the boat is considered an appropriate amount of chain. Problem was the racers that I was racing with had... <laughs> decided to try and find a loophole in the safeties uh, rules so that they could make their boat a bit lighter. And they had put plastic chain, <laughs> like the stuff that ropes off a beer garden. Um, so we had a all aluminum anchor and then it was attached to a piece of, <laughs> piece of plastic chain that was 35 foot long. And then it went to this like tiny shoelace of a thing, which was meant to be the anchor road. So um, there are, there are bad ways of doing this as well as good ways, but uh, with an appropriate amount of chain down, which on board this little uh, 36 foot training vessel was about 40 foot of, oh, I don't know, maybe probably like three eighths chain. It might've been half inch. I don't know, but I think it was three eighths chain that goes over the front of the boat very, very fast because we've come up into the bay. We have doused the jib. We have doused the mainsail. And now the boat is just blowing sideways towards the shore. And what I'm working on is the basis that down goes the anchor. And my initial idea is I'm going to put every drop of ground tackle out that there is. So boom, out it goes. The boat starts to drag sideways. As soon as that's on its way, I then get the... Um, the Danforth anchor, which is a normal galvanized steel Danforth anchor from the back of the boat with its little bit of appropriately sized chain as well. And as soon as the boat is dragged 20 feet, um, I chuck this other thing through the uh, over the other side of the boat with its anchor warp coming up through the uh, opposing hawse pipe. So I've got two anchors out now and the boat is dragging, or not dragging, the boat is drifting sideways rather rapidly in this um, in this storm. And, uh, and and rapidly approaching the beach. You know, the beginning of this maneuver was maybe 500 feet from the beach. We're now down to 300 feet from the beach when the bow anchor comes up tight against its um, uh, gear and the front of the boat starts to snap around towards pointing towards it. I let it hold against it. I've got, I should point out on this, I have a 10 horsepower long shaft engine on a long drop bracket on the back of the boat, which has got exactly nothing that it can add to this situation in terms of like backing the boat down. So backing the boat down onto the anchor is gonna be done by the wind. And it's gonna be done by the fact that it was drifting sideways and then snapped its nose uh, into alignment with the, with the anchor warp. So it snaps its nose in line with the anchor warp. And then I ease a little bit more of the uh, 
bower warp out and I have secured what was the kedge anchor, the little anchor from the back. I've secured that one. I let the boat snap onto and snug in the kedge anchor, the second anchor that's out the bow. So I've got one to dig in and now I've got the other to dig in. And now I start to balance up the loads on those two lines that the boat is sitting. They are not in any way spread, which would be better if there was 30 or 40 degrees between them. But they are both down, which is good. There's chain down. I'm pretty damn sure that it's straight from the, the uh, force with which the boat snapped against it. And thank God they've both uh, held. The back of the boat is now 150 foot off the beach, right? And there's quite big rollers coming in and it's quite a flat beach so are we done i guess is my question is that the best we can do well no because those very early bits of learning about anchoring we learned that more rope out even if it's just rope means that you lower the angle of the uh, anchor to the boat and the lower the anchor warps angle to the seabed so what i then did was strip the halyards off the mast and no i didn't put messenger lines up there because uh, I had 12 very frightened people in the bottom of the boat and I need to make sure that I gave this my best shot. So I then attached the uh, halyards. The halyards are smaller than the anchor warps, so a sheet bend is appropriate. I sheet bend the halyards into the anchor warps and then start letting that out and then let out some more and let out some more and the sheets and everything until literally the boat is about 50 foot off the beach and it's almost in the surf. Luckily, it was a very long, low grade to the beach. There weren't big plunging waves. And the boat comes to a stop. Um, and we are in a position where the speedboat can come alongside, take the participants off the boat, leaving me and the other instructor on board, and take the participants to the land where a minibus comes from the school and takes them back to the school. Awesome. So that's good. We've got everybody uh, happy and safe. And it just leaves uh, the sailors on board the boat. We're now in a situation where, um, you know, this wind has blown up a lot stronger than anybody expected. We followed all of the guidelines and everybody that's involved in it from now on is very aware that, you know, we may or may not lose the boat. So how do we make sure that we don't lose the boat? Well, I got them to bring around in the money bus when they came around from the Outer Bound School, another CQR anchor, another length of appropriate chain and more anchor warp. So they were able to use a speedboat to take that out at a 45 degree angle to the first two anchors I put out, which are almost in line with each other, and then pass me the line. Then I was able to balance between them. Now I've got a spread. Now I've got a spread of three anchors out, and I've got a pretty good gig going on. And uh, I lay down in the bow and started to get a little bit of shut eye because sleep, as we discussed before, is a weapon. So during the night, I checked the anchors. So how can I tell what's going on underwater? I can't use a torch. It's not the Caribbean where you can go down and look at it. Well, everything was bar tight. <laughs> so it was obviously holding somehow. Great. But what I can do is I can put my hands or feet, depending on where you're at, um, onto the anchor warp and I can try and like feel what's going on. So what would it feel like if the anchor was dragging? Um, you can often see it just as the, the, the line kind of shimmers through the water and the boat drags back a little bit. But if you put your hand onto it, you're going to actually be able to feel that vibration and feel the anchor skipping across the bottom. It will dig in 
it'll grab the bow of the boat will kind of look towards the anchor and then it will skip the anchor as it comes out the water the anchor warp as it comes out the water or the chain you can see it kind of shimmer and shiver and it might throw off some water droplets and then it will drop back into the water and you get this tensioning and releasing as the anchor drags backwards now mine we're not moving. Great. So how can I improve the situation? Well, what I realized, of course, one detail that I hadn't got into because of the nature of the emergency was that I had three anchors out. I had two hose pipes and one was dealing with two anchor warps. What I also had on that boat, because it had a bowsprit, is it had a little ring down below the bobstay, below the rigging beneath the bowsprit. That ring down there, we often used to use it for towing the boats, uh, or rather should I say the outbound school used it for towing the boats. Once I got there, we changed that a little bit because that ring is put there by the boat's designer and by the manufacturers um, to help with anchoring. And what it does is if you're in a situation where you've got... Um, Anchor, anchor gear, ground tackle going out through one of the horse pipes, the boat is going to sit at a kind of funny angle to the wind. So I always think of it, if you took the boat and you hung it up in the air by its anchor chain, how would it hang in the air? If it's not hanging with its nose directly upwards, pointing towards the anchor, you've then got a surface, which is going to start to become a bit of a sail. Boats are quite kind of contoured and shaped and a lot of those contours bear a lot of resemblance towards aerodynamically powerful shapes the hull of the boat and its planform shape underwater can start to create propulsion effects is the best way to put it it starts to sail on the end of the anchor chain it's very hard to get boats to stop doing this there's a couple of tricks which we can go through but if you uh, have the option available one thing that can really settle a boat down very very easily is that butterfly line it's called which comes from beneath the bobstay um, you get a piece of line appropriately sized you seize it onto that um, eye down the bottom and you have a piece of line which is long enough to come in through the horse pipe and for you to work with it and to put a rolling hitch onto your anchor chain or I guess you could put a chain hook on if you've got that you then let out the anchor chain or let out the the anchor warp whatever it is you've got and then the force of the anchoring situation will go onto the butterfly line which is attached beneath the bobstay it's low which is great that means that you're um, lowering the angle of the uh, ground tackle or, or rather of the anchor chain going down to the anchor you're lowering it that's good you're also centralizing it that's great and you're avoiding any kind of rubbing maneuvers up against your bobstay or your bowsprit or any other associated gear at the front of the boat so i took one of my lines and it was the one with the smaller anchor the kedge anchor and i attached that onto the butterfly line so now i had the smallest anchor at the lowest angle on the central point and i had two larger cqr anchors in a wider span of about 30 35 degrees um, holding me with the longest possible warps on them that it was possible to do without the boat going aground and after I'd done that, I slept pretty easily because there's not much else you can do. We weren't shearing around very much by that point, which was good. Um, but when I woke up in the morning and I went to the back of the boat to relieve myself, I was literally 10 feet off the, uh, <laughs> off the sand. Now, the boats were very, very shallow. It had a centerboard, so it wasn't really an issue and a lifting rudder. But um, it was the final extrapolation of a piece of seafaring knowledge, which is that it's better to have the longest possible anchor warp or anchor chain there is and be safe than to try and short shift yourself 
and then trip the anchor prematurely. So that little scenario does give us a couple of opportunities to talk about, you know, a real world situation of anchoring. But one thing we could look at particularly is shearing. So shearing is when the boat is on the anchor and through whatever process, you can't stop it from moving around. How do you like settle it down? If you've got a catch, you can put up your mizzen sail, a mizzen sail and you can pin it in the center and then it will act to kind of weathercock the boat around and just point it directly into the breeze. It's super simple to do, it's super reliable, and um, and it's right there, the mizzen's right there, why not use it for that, that's great. If you've got a sloop rig, it's a little bit trickier, and then you need to make a riding sail. So riding sails can be uh, hoisted up the backstay, and the sheet of this little triangular sail is then taken forwards, onto some secure point on the deck or onto the end of the boom. And then the riding sail itself, it's not the most like aerodynamically sensible shape because you're dealing with basically the, the foot and the uh, leech of the sail pointing into the wind and the luff is running down a backstay that's pointing the opposite way. But it can be done. And actually, if you're interested, on, on two occasions, I've actually sailed boats backwards off the dock using a jib and a... Um, and a riding sail. So <laughs> it's, it's possible to use it for other things. Um, if you've got split backstays, you're going to have to come up with something. You could use something along the lines of like a diarchy stay, which is um, a stay which as the sail pulls itself, is pulled up by the stay, the final moments of tension create tension in the stay that the sail is being hoisted up. The sail is attached to the stay and you are grabbing hold of a point which is like above the sail on the stay and you've got a block that's riding uh, on that and as you pull it tight you create a stay and then tension that stay and the sail that you've got goes up on it. it's called a diarchy stay um, the other thing you can do well the other thing you must make sure of is of course is that the the rudder is centralized and that the helm is pinned you don't want it to i remember being somewhere or other and uh, there was a storm coming in and one of the boats at the uh, marina was just going bickies like it was uh, shearing around all over the place in incredibly fast movements um a couple of people even tried to go over and board the boat but it was just impossible it was so dangerous in that kind of time where the boat is shearing at the at the mooring or shearing at the anchorage, the development of forces in the ground tackle is, is huge. It can be up to seven to eight times more than the normal anchoring loads. At that point, it's very likely that you're going to drag the anchor gear or snap the anchor gear or damage your, your anchor handling gear on the front of the boat. Shearing must be avoided. One thing that I've learned recently with the uh, Open 60 that I've got down here, actually I'm looking out the window here, I can see it's mast, is that if I don't want the boat to move around a lot, if there's a lot of wind predicted, what I do is turn the boat around and I actually moor it, because it's a mooring here, not an anchorage, I moor it by its stern. That works because the boat is very wide across the back. Um, that boat is, I think, 5.5 meters across the back and it's 20 meters long. So it's a very, very wide um, attachment point. And that means that you've got great angles between the lines that are doing the job. And that means it's very, very stable. I'm not presenting the wind with an angled surface. I'm presenting it with the flat transom on the back of the boat. Now, for most boats, you've got a taper in the stern. You know, for a sea kindly boat, 
you've got a taper in the stern and this is not going to be that useful but there are a couple of boats out there now if i think of like the sense 50 from from uh, from beneto it's very very wide if i think of like a cmb bordeaux 60 something like that they're very wide they're square at the back and they're using that to give more volume in owners cabins to have uh, dinghy docks at the back of the boat to give more room on deck it is possible to take a sloop and to uh, moor it from its stern. Now, <laughs> for me, on my boat, this is something which is possible, mostly due to the fact that uh, it's so wide, but also I have no dedicated ground tackle handling gear at the front of the boat. There are no cleats, there are no fair leads, there's no gypsy, there's no Samson post, there's no nothing. So for me to attach at the back is the same amount of problems as attaching at the front. What I can take benefit from is the fact that the, the shape of the back of the boat is more stable when it's faced into the wind. This may well not work on your boat, but thinking outside the box sometimes can present you with solutions that might be more beneficial. I remember, um, again, seems to be lots of Hong Kong stories today, but the Aberdeen Yacht Club, had we had a typhoon go through Hong Kong in, I think it was 96, and the Admiral, uh, the Admiral, the, um, the Commodore of the Yacht Club got a commendation afterwards because he had all the boats connect themselves together and then they created this ginormous raft. This were boats that otherwise would be on moorings and um, they faced the storm together as a concerted kind of front with multiple connection points and, um, and rode it out that way rather than being individual boats flying around the moorings. So it's always good to look at what seamanship can do, what um, problems have been solved in the past, what solutions have been generated, but leave it open for, you know, a little bit of uh, your own spice there. That's what moves this thing forward when people come up with new ideas. I see lots of things on YouTube and online which are unique to that particular sailor and his or her boat and their situation, and yet they are all in their way adding to what is the... Um, the, the, the lexicon of, of seamanship. So if you see something that you think, hey, oh, this might work here, sometimes it's worth giving it a go. So you can have believed how surprised I was when I discovered that um, it was actually uh, my old man, uh, Ryan Barkey there, who uh, connected the boat up the wrong way around. I think, I think it was like out of convenience the first time. <laughs> it's like, well, maybe there's something in this. We had to turn the boat around for uh, doing some work on the bowsprit. So the bowsprit was towards the dock rather than the stern. And then the boat got taken out to the mooring and then it was like moored by its backside. And then it's like, wow, this is really good. So anyway, might, might be useful. You never know. Okay, so um, we talked about uh, how to feel whether the anchor is uh, uh, dug in or not. I guess we should discuss like going to an anchorage and doing the type B anchoring, not the type A anchoring where you just dump it down. We've kind of had a bit of a discussion about how it can be very important to get it right. How can you go into an anchorage and make sure that the gear you're putting down is gonna be safe for the entire time? One of the things that was passed to me when I very first got into sailing is the fact that anchoring is a unique moment where you could have literally millions of dollars with a boat or hundreds of thousands of dollars with a boat or certainly amount of money that you can't afford to lose hanging on an $80 shackle. And let's not forget the galvanized shackles are, you know, in use widely. They might talk about stainless steel, you might talk about alloys, you might talk about whatever, but a lot of people have got galvanized gear, even super yachts, galvanized gear on their ground tackle. Of course, no problem. Not expensive though. 
And I can remember a number of times anchoring. I remember anchoring in the Bay of Saint-Tropez in a 120-foot super yacht that weighed about 200 ton. And um, as the anchor went over the side, I was reflecting on the fact that it was just a very standard galvanized shackle that was anchoring the boat to the seabed. So not to get into the details of that too much, but metaphorically speaking, you're going to hang <laughs> this very expensive commodity off very essentially cheap gear, right? Anchors... We'll get a bit of a kind of sweat on when we go to the Chandler and have to buy a new anchor. But compared to the value of the boat, it's not very much. We all get a big sweat on when we go and buy anchor chain. We'll have a bit of a discussion about that. And yet it's very cheap compared to the value of the boat. But the thing that's the most cheap is the shackle that connects the anchor chain to the anchor. And yet, like, how much effort do we give it? So anyway, we're going to get this gear. We're going to put it over the side of the boat. And then using the power of seamanship, we are going to secure this boat. Now, if you're in the Caribbean or in the Mediterranean and you can dive over the side and check the anchor, that's awesome. However, I don't live in one of those places. I live in Nova Scotia. And the only way I'm going to go over the side is if the boat is on fire. So this is going to have to happen in such a way that it does not require me to put on a mask and go down and check the flipping anchor. So how do we do it? Well, the, the right gear has got to be uh, one of the key parts to this. Obviously, anchor design is something which has been evolving a lot over the years. The bower anchor, the anchor that's at the front of the boat, a lot of people are going to go for a bower anchor, which is easy to, to, to bring up and into whatever's your storage arrangements on the front of the boat. I've worked on uh, traditional vessels where the anchor is catted and fished and then disconnected from the anchor chain and then put onto chocks on the deck. At that point, a Danforth anchor, which is those big flat flukes in the central shank and the, the bar that goes across the end of it and it all kind of gets lashed down onto the deck. It's very flat, very, very efficient. Um, that's a great anchor for us. Also in use is what we call like a, a hall stockless anchor, which would be your real kind of traditional ship's anchor. The the main stock of the anchor gets drawn right up into the hawse pipe. The two big flukes end up outside uh, on the hull of the ship. The whole lot is drawn bang tight and then it's secured during the period of time that the boat's at sea. When it drops, those two big flukes are on a hinge relative to the stock so that anchor is able to drag across the bottom and then the weight of the flukes these things could be in the you know hundreds of pounds up to tens of thousands of pounds the flukes start to just get a little bit of an angle on a little bit of a dip into the mud and then the uh, they act kind of like the hydroplanes on a submarine they start to dive the anchor down into the mud down into the sand and that's what gives it its ability to hold that's fine a lot of those rely on weight alone more efficient designs have been created. One of the hallmarks that I like of anchors, because I work a lot in sail training, is I like an anchor that has uh, no moving parts, right? And it's a bit of a kind of back to front way of coming at this. I like the plow type anchors, like the CQR, like um, the Delta. The CQR, however, has got a, a hinge joint at the, at, at the kind of the midpoint of the thing. And, um, 
it is uh, uh, an anchor which if you ever have to heft it and move it and and drag it around which we do a lot on race boats because these anchors don't stay at the bow they stay down at the mast step and then must be picked up and moved onto the deck by amateur crew that point of the anchor where that hinges is almost exactly at the balance point and that means your hand invariably ends up there and if you've got an anchor which weighs I know 30 kilos or something the the plow part of it may well be 20 kilos but the shaft of it is 10 kilos like 22 pounds it can end up kind of moving relative to itself with fingers caught up in the hinge and a lot of damage ensuing same with uh, Danforth anchors where you have those big flukes and they can be very relatively you know small tolerances between the flukes and the, and the main part of the anchor. People lift things and twist things and moving things and if they don't know exactly how that anchor is going to react to being picked up and the, and the weight distribution, the flukes can move relative to the stock, fingers get caught in it and that's the, uh, the end of the, 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 the happiness for the day. So I've moved on to favoring things like the Delta, the Rockner, and the um, the uh, Bruce Anchor. The Bruce Anchor was developed for oil rigs. It's kind of clover leaf shape, and it's just literally like a, a giant hand <laughs> and this metal shaft thing, and it just lies on the seabed, gets a bit of a dig in, and then pulls. And it can be incredibly efficient. I remember leaving Challenger, my Whitbread 60, in... Um, St. Martin for three months and a, and a big storm blew in and um, she was pulling real hard at the anchor. She was being maintained. She was being looked at after by some of the local guys here, really helping me out. But come the end of it, when I needed to bring the anchor up, I was in a bit of a pickle because uh, race boats don't have a windlass. So how do you get a really deep set anchor out of the seabed? We can pull on it with halyards and things, but it just wasn't going to shift. So I had to don my tanks go down and I've had to do this a number of times in my life, dig the anchor out. And the anchor, I can tell you, if I lay on the seabed with my arms fully extended at right angles to my body going down into the earth, I was just getting my fingers onto the uh, top of the anchor as it lay. And I had to literally dig down zero visibility, um, awful conditions to be to be diving in, very much kind of like a commercial diving situation, definitely not for pleasure, but just digging down and down and down in this marina, essentially. It's the lagoon at St. Martin, but it may as well be a marina for the amount of human effluent which has been pumped into it over the decades. I'm just digging down and down and down to get my anchor back. <laughs> I'm a bit sensitive about leaving anchors around the place, and uh, I wanted that one back, so I dug it out. But um, that that uh, anchor can dig right down, right down into the ground. So the gear that you have at the front of the boat is going to be something that's suited to your boat. It could be an anchor which is selected because it's got great holding power. That's awesome. But they all have pretty good holding power, um, unless you're looking at some really ancient design, um, something with a cross on it, made of stone with a hole through it. Um, but they've all got pretty good holding power. But think about just how it's going to be used. I mentioned earlier the kedge anchor. The main anchor at the bow of the boat is called the bower anchor, but we have the kedge anchor. And the kedge anchor has a very useful uh, function. It's normally located towards the back of the boat, and it gives you a couple of options. You can kind of back out of places with it. You can have that anchor laid down as you're entering somewhere, and then you can draw in on the anchor road or the chain or whatever it is, and then you can pull yourself back out of there. I had a very interesting time working at the Outbound School in Hong Kong as the head of the sailing department. When I started doing that job, I discovered that a lot of the instructors use the um, 
kedge anchor as an emergency handbrake <laughs> that would go bombing in towards the shore and then just basically clove hitch it onto one of the Samson posts inside the back of this open training boat, chuck it off the back, and then it would just jam up tight. And I must have literally sent three of them to the blacksmith to have them the, the fluke straightened out because they were stopping this, as we said, like seven ton boat with all these people on board in big squalls, they were stopping it dead with the sail still full um, with the anchor, like go figure, right? But um, it held it, it did it. So it wasn't that the anchor itself was the weak point in it. So knowing how your, um, how your boat is operated, knowing what the storage protocols are for the anchors and knowing how it's been moved around may choose you to get to one design more than the other. Unless you've got a dedicated roller at the back of the boat, it's quite likely that your um, kedge anchor will be a Danforth because they lay very flat and they're great to put in the um, lockers at the back of the boat, secured down on chocks and lashed down on the bottom. And then you can get them out easy and chuck them off the back. That can be brought up to the bow though. So how it's handled in the hand can become important. I should at this point point out that a fortress anchor, which I mentioned earlier, is of the Danforth pattern. It's got the same design overall. Um, it's just made of aluminum and uh, they're funny things. If you've never used one, I find them to be quite curious. They're, um, they've got a little bit of magic about them. <laughs> so they're, they're very much favored by racers because they're very, very light when they're on board the boat. Um, I had this weird experience once where I was in the Open 60 Spartan coming into, uh, we, we come into Charleston on this uh, round the world race and then we're doing like photo shoots and corporate sailing and all sorts of stuff. So I don't know if you know Charleston, but there's a big uh, bridge that goes across from like the downtown area to, well, an out of town area. I don't know wherever our, it was close to our motel. If that's of any interest, you could walk from the motel over the bridge and you get to the boat real easy. So where we were parking the boat was quite close to the bridge, but the bridge itself was lower than the air draft of the boat, which is like 105 feet. So as I'm approaching the marina, I'm not really that worried, but the bridge is, you know, a factor in my kind of calculations. As I get in there, two things happen. Sod's law, of course, the wind suddenly starts to pick up give me a big cross breeze, making it very difficult to get this boat in. And that Open 60 had a wing mast on it. So, you know, that you can't you can't reef a wing mast. You, you can't do very much with it at all. You can kind of turn it a little bit into the wind, but then the, that has a propulsive effect on the boat. So I'm getting pushed around a lot by this. And then the engine croaks. <laughs> because it would, right? Because if something's going to go wrong, that's the perfect time for it to go wrong. So suddenly then I'm getting, I'm drifting very quickly sideways in a race boat, which is the sister vessel of the Open 60 I've got now. So it has no windlass, no anchor at the bow, no cleats, no anything else. Um, not my most seaman-like uh, entry to port because I think having had these kind of experiences, I'm now a lot more aware of where my anchors are and how to rig them quickly. So I dove down through the forward hatch into the sail locker, which is in no way set up to facilitate me getting the anchor out quickly, but I managed to grab this anchor, grab a halyard, which on that boat, there'd be two to one halyard, so you'd like 200 foot of 12 mil Dyneema. 
I put a bowline probably through the end of the anchor and I slung it off the side and, and called that an anchoring maneuver um, and then watched in amazement <laughs> as the anchor uh, skimmed across the surface of the water because the boat was being blown sideways so fast by the windage uh, on it and this, this wing mast. Say we were doing four knots sideways with just a rope attached. The flipping anchor was just skipping across the surface of the water like a hydroplane. It was the flukes were up and it was just pulling it across the surface. Like, oh my God, what am I going to do next? <laughs> like I've got other options. So I'm waving my arms in a, you know, full professional fashion. Help, help. Um, like Penelope Pitstop. And um, luckily, thank goodness, a local guy came over in a T-top with a couple of 100s on the, on the back, comes alongside me, does a great job of securing himself to the boat, offers his service to Tommy. Thank you very much, sir. And we start to drive forward towards a marina and all is good in the world, apart from the fact that we're not actually moving forward because we're stuck. Something, so man, are we aground? Like, what's the deal here? And then I look, and of course, when he took me under tow, he stopped my relative motion through the water, at which point the anchor sank. <laughs> and then as he started to make way forwards, the anchor started to dig in. So now I've got the anchor underwater and I've got this uh, guy pulling against me and I've got the bridge, which I'm kind of precariously close to. So I had to make a very tearful decision and cut the halyard, which meant that I then threw away a hundred foot or 12 mil Dyneema, which is like what, five US a foot. Um, plus a 400 US dollar anchor. So the magical aspect of a fortress anchor is that you have to put some chain on it else it doesn't sink. And as a detail, probably best not to use the plastic chain from the beer garden. So um, fortress anchors though, great to have as a backup. And what it means is that, you know, you can have a bow anchor, have a kedge anchor, and then you can have a fortress anchor and they can be, um, demounted. So they're all in pieces in a bag and you only need like five, 10 minutes to get it back together again. So that's a good option to have in place, but your kedge anchor, yeah, great for maybe putting in a mooring, uh, in a river where you want to keep the boat orientated one way. Uh, great for putting out two anchors from the bow and, and creating um, a, uh, a secure uh, split uh, ground tackle solution. Two things going out at angles from the bow so the boat's stronger. One way that I used to use my kedge anchor as well is I used to make, um, what did I used to call it? I used to call it a drag anchor. There was no, there was no um, uh, chart plotter on these little training boats in Hong Kong. There was, there was a little GPS, but it just had AA batteries and it. it was old school, right? You couldn't just be, you had to come up with things that like worked. So I wanted to make a system which was foolproof, bulletproof for the participants, which were staying on deck uh, and, and maintaining anchor watch through the night. Um, so we'll, well, I'll describe that in a second when I describe anchoring, but the, the, tri the, the drag anchor was uh, a nice little detail I added in. So we are looking at the gear at the bow of the boat. We've got the anchor, which is suited by its size to the boat. We've got the chain, which is suited in size to the boat and to the gypsy of the windlass that it's going to be going over. You need to have a chain which is calibrated and fits exactly into those little recesses on the uh, wildcat or the gypsy. Otherwise it's going to skip. And one thing I would also add, I was watching a YouTube video. The guy was brilliant. Had this wonderful uh, sloop rigged boat. I don't want to look at the computer to, to work out who this was. So <laughs> I'm going to have to guess, but he was doing a fantastic job of describing anchoring. And then he was describing the fact that he'd had issues with his um, chain skipping over the gypsy on his, uh, on his windlass. And I looked at the setup and realized that the 
where the windlass had been uh, placed on the deck, the chain went out almost horizontally from the gypsy to the uh, hawse pipes, which were set into the bulwarks at the front of the boat, the kind of raised panels at the front of the boat in this quite large boat, either side of the bowsprit. The chain went out almost horizontally from the gypsy to the, to the places where it was going through the sides of the boat. But then where it came up through the deck was quite far aft relative to the windlass and to the gypsy. So it kind of came up at an angle to the gypsy and then left the top of the gypsy, having only really done like one third of a uh, of the arc of the of the gypsy. So it was hardly engaged in the gypsy at all. And he was uh, describing to us, the viewers, that he was going to put a devil's claw, a securing point for the chain on the deck to draw the chain down and take the weight off the windlass. But I thought, wow, the, the issue why your gypsy's slipping is because the chain's barely in connection with the gypsy. So what you'd normally find is that the exit point from the the foredeck from the chain locker is almost directly under the after edge of the gypsy. It then goes up and over the gypsy and then to a point just slightly forward of the gypsy so that the chain really is engaged with the mechanism of the windlass for the maximum possible uh, rotation that gives it good grip. But you've got the right chain. You've got the right anchor that works for you. And is that anchor suited to the bed? Now, you can't be driving around with all sorts of different anchors for all sorts of different situations. But you could have a Danforth anchor on the as the Kedge anchor, which is a Bruce anchor, for example, because a Bruce anchor doesn't have any um, joints, hinges in it. It's easy to move around the boat without damaging your fingers. It's got good holding in mud. Then you could have a... Um, let's say uh, a Delta anchor or a CQR anchor, which only ever goes onto the bow roller. And it's really good for going down into mud and sand. It's awesome. And then you could have a Fortress anchor, which is in a little bag somewhere down in the boat. And uh, that, it, you know, kind of comes out once in a while to do the good things that uh, Danforth anchor can do. Danforths are good at soft sand. They're pretty good at mud. They can skip quite a lot over um, hard sand bottoms or shale bottoms, but they've got pretty good holding. Um, maybe uh, a lot of people would want to have like some super heavy anchor right down on top of the keel, which is your like go to in case you've got a real big problem. So that might be a Danforth anchor because it stores so flat and it goes under the sole of the uh, of the cabin. So you might have a Danforth down there, a fortress in a bag, a Bruce at the back, a CQR at the front. And then you need to look at the chart, which is going to tell you what the bottom's made of. And you may choose to use one anchor more than the other. Um, some people often have a little grapnel anchor if they're in coral. You know, anchoring in coral is not a good idea because the coral, <laughs> right? So there's not very many places you're going to go and put like a coral pick down. Um, the, there are some very rocky bottoms. Um, you'll probably get a hook in with a Danforth or get a hook in with a, uh, a Delta with a nice sharp point on it, just as good as a grapnel. Um, if you have to anchor in coral, it should be some kind of like emergency situation. And I have noticed that some of the uh, newer designs of anchors, what they're specifically trying to make happen is they want the anchor to go into the ground as quick as possible, get its uh, tip in, and then there's at least uh, time spent as possible of dragging the anchor across the seabed trying to get it to dig in. So uh, government organizations which are operating in marine parks favor newer design of anchors. I'm trying to remember what that very new one is. Uh, maybe I do have to look at the computer. Oh my goodness. But there, there is a newer sort of anchor. I think it's a rock. It might be a Rockner. And it, it's 
its skill is that it, it holds very well for its weight, but it gets in quick. And that's what you want if you're in an area which has a delicate seabed, um, you know, and as, as seafarers, as, as, as we're custodians of the sea in many ways, we don't chuck our crap in the ocean. We don't, um, you know, smash things up and, 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 uh, unnecessarily hurt sea animals and we don't also drag the anchor around on the bottom destroying coral which takes hundreds if not thousands of years to develop so that might be a reason where you choose that particular sort of anchor but you've got the um the gear that works for you and now it's time to select your anchoring area so one thing which uh i guess is key here is how is your depth uh meter set for me, having come from a commercial background and working on the time uh, all the time on commercial boats, there is only one way to set up your depth meter. Okay, um, the sounder on the boat should be showing you the depth below the lowest appendage on the keel. So it should be that when that reads zero, you go aground. Some people have their sounders set from the bottom of the hull, ignoring the depth of the keel. And then some people have it set with an inverted offset, which then shows the depth of the water and ignores almost entirely the boat, which I find that a little bit curious. It's not very hard to do the mathematics to work out um, like the difference between what you read on the chart and what's on your chart, uh, sorry, and what's on your um, depth meter if you are... Uh, you know, if you've got like very basic maths, it's not that hard, like it's 20 meters of water and the thing is reading 16 meters. That's because my boat draws four meters. Okay. You've always got to play anyway with the fact of what's the height of the tide over the, the, the lowest astronomical tide, which is shown on the chart. So you're always going to have to play around one way or another. Unless you live somewhere like Florida or the Caribbean, where the tidal range is like 0.3 of a meter, it seems a false economy to think that you're helping yourself out by giving yourself some weird offset or something. I, I once drove a boat where I didn't notice this detail until it came to anchoring time. And I was driving around in the anchoring area looking for the depth, basically, uh, and checking the depth against the chart. And we went harder ground. And we went harder ground because the... Um, that the person that had been driving the boat before me had offset the uh, the depth sounder on this boat to the water surface. They'd done an inversion of the uh, offset depth so that it was reading from the surface of the water. So I hadn't noticed this detail and uh, boom, the keel goes harder ground when it reads 3.2 meters, which was definitely the, <laughs> the draft of the boat. I proved it by driving aground, but I should have been, you know, driving around with three meters underneath me. So I would say that the depth should always, and, and from a commercial point of view, I can tell you legally if you end up in court and you've got it set in any other way, they're not going to smile on you. Always remember with boating and legal things that if you go to court, the professional witness uh, on the other side of the court from you is not going to be some uh, person with sunglasses and shorts and a leatherman on his hip. It's going to be a commercial seafarer. And they're already a bit suspicious of us. Um, <laughs> I can tell you haven't been in the Navy or the Merchant Navy. Um, then they're not. Yachts are kind of like, uh, <clears throat> what's the best way of putting it? To, to commercial seafarers, yachties are like the kind of raccoons at the sea. <laughs> and I say that as one myself. You're always turning up in places you're not meant to be. You're kind of outside the rules a lot of time. You're kind of a little bit cowboyish. That's definitely how I know we're seen, having come over to the other side of it, I know what a depth of knowledge people are seeking out. They want to do it the best they possibly can. But there's that kind of like 
cowboy kind of air to things. And, uh, and that's how we like it because we want to be free and we want to be simple. But if you end up in a situation where you are trying to explain the nature of an accident in court, I assure you the master mariner uh, opposite will raise his or her eyebrows very, very high if the depth sounder is set to anything other than the lowest point of the hull or keel. So um, you start to look at your chart, look at the depths in the area, and then have a drive around and see if that's so. If you are in areas where you have big coral bombies, the big kind of um, uh, lumps of, of, of coral, brain coral that come and uh, they can grow to proportions which become important within anchoring and may well not be marked on the chart. So you've got to like check out is what this chart's saying absolutely right? Now, if you're here in Nova Scotia, you know, there's not much coral growing around here, but I will say this, I did go aground at a public jetty about three years ago, like Challenger high and dry out the water, balancing on a keel tied onto this jetty because they had created a flat seabed with a GPS uh, laser guided um, digging arrangement. And then I'm told by the locals that they then came back afterwards and chucked a couple of VW size boulders into, and I'm doing air quotes here, stop uh, erosion by the tidal stream in that area. But what it did is it said, uh, I know four meters on the chart, but it wasn't, it was three meters and, uh, and Challenger found the difference. So look at what's on the chart, look at what the seabed is, make sure your gear is suited to it and then drive around and use your correctly calibrated sounder to confirm what it is that you are seeing. Obviously, some of the um, fish finders, pardon me, some of the fish finders, which we, uh, I know from Raymarine, they've got um, such incredible uh, clarity that you can literally see rocks, fish, even vegetation underwater, all sorts of things. So you can get a really clear idea of what's going on. If you have a motorboat or some kind of sailing vessel, it's equipped with that kind of uh, chirp sonar, that downward uh, uh, looking equipment which can give you such a clear view of the seabed for the rest of us we just get a basic idea of the of the depth and then it's time to uh, make an assessment of how much chain and how much needs to go out and now i need to bring in the point that warren mangan gave to me hey warren um he said this there are numbers out there for how much chain or warp and chain you're going to put out so you've either got mixed ground tackle rope and chain, or you got all chain. When I was coming up, it was always four times the maximum depth during the anchoring period, four times that depth in chain, or five times in mixed uh, mixed anchor gear, or mixed road and, and chain, right? I think that's been developed over time now, and I've seen numbers which are up in the sixes and sevens. So, hmm, what to do? I would say five times the depth, the maximum depth that you will experience during the anchoring period. So you've got to know the tides, you've got to know the tidal range that you're on, you've got to have an accurate idea what's going to be the maximum depth during the anchoring period. You're going to be putting out some multiplication of that number. And Warren's point was very good, and very, very well made. He was pointing out the fact that at an anchorage, different skippers may choose different amounts of chain to put out based on the facts as they see them. There's a couple of factors here. Number one is, let's say for the purpose of this discussion, so I don't have to trip over repeating the same phrases over and over again, as a median safe amount of chain to put out in most conditions 
whether it be a mixed system or a full chain system, five times the depth is fine. That'd be a minimum, okay? Five times the depth during the anchoring period plus the depth, sorry, plus the height, should I say, plus the height from the water to the uh, horse pipe on the boat. Now, how to interpret that is Warren's point. If you have a sailing boat, which has only got a meter between the water level and the horse pipe or the point where the anchor is going over the side of the boat and the water that you're going to anchor in is five meters deep, it could be five times five meters plus the distance from the water to that anchoring point on deck or through the horse pipe. So you're going to have 26 meters of chain out and that means it's going to be uh, 52 meters across your scope circle plus the length of your boat on either side of the circle. So if you've got a 33 foot boat, a 10 meter boat, you've got 26 meters of chain out. We're going to take 26 meters. We're going to add it to 10. So we've got 36 and then we're going to double that because we're going to go take that radius and make it into a diameter. So now we've got 72 meters from the back of the boat on one side of the circle to the back of the boat on the other side of the circle. There's another way of interpreting this, which is that it's, we're gonna take this median amount to make things simple, five times the depth plus the height from the water to the um, horse pipe. Does that mean that we take on our sailing vessel one meter from the deck to the water plus the five meters from the water surface to the seabed? So that's now six meters times by five, which is now 30. So now we've got 30 meters of radius on our scope plus our 10 meter boat, that's 40. And then we're gonna double it to make it diameter. So now we've got 80. So we have a bit of a difference here now between the amount which is being played out for uh, interpreting the rules in one way as opposed to interpreting another way. Do we add the height from the bow roller to the water, uh, to the depth of water and then times that by the amount that we should have out? Or do we times it by the amount that goes from the surface of the water to the seabed, and at the end of the equation, add on a little bit. All of the stuff that I have ever done only ever discusses how much chain goes out that you then lower that shackle marker down to the surface of the water. None of the stuff that I've ever been involved in even discusses the rise from the sea to the ship's bow or whatever it is, because as Warren points out, if you're dealing with a motorboat, which has got like three or four meters, and then you're adding that to the depth of water, and then you're timesing that by a number, you can have one style of boat, which has a massively different uh, scope circle to a differently designed boat. If you are gonna add all those things up in, in the way that gives the biggest possible values. For me personally, you select the amount of chain, you run it out, and you run it down to the water. And that just takes the equation completely off the table. Don't even bother about how far the bowsprit or the horsepipe or anything else is off the surface of the water. Work out how much chain you're going to put out and then lower that to the water. And if there's not a mark exactly there on the chain, well, add marks or add a zip tie or tie a piece of string around it or a rag or stuff a piece of tissue through it and then lower it over the side till the piece of tissue goes into the water. You're just dealing with the depth of, of water, but you must make sure you've accounted for the, um, the height of tide and these amounts that we're talking about, as we say, are minimums. So you can always put out more. 
Now, Warren's point is that if you're in an anchorage and all the boats are relying on the fact that, you know, everyone's kind of doing it the same, so they all move around the same, somebody running things in a slightly different manner can end up with a boat like way out of position. One thing I'd add into that discussion is the fact that motorboats will handle breeze differently than a sailing boat. Sailing boats got a big hydraulic lock underwater, which means that it's much more affected by what's going on in the water than what's going on with the wind. Remember that one knot of tide is worth five of wind when you're maneuvering a boat. Motor boats are less affected by tidal movements than they are by the wind. Sailing boats can be drifting around on a tidal stream in a river going upwind because the tide is much stronger to that sailboat than the wind affects. Equally then, a full keel boat will handle things differently than a modified skeg and keel. A centerboarder that's lifted his centerboard up while he's um, at the mooring because he don't want to hear it clanking around in the centerboard casing is going to act differently to something else. So a catamaran, of course, is going to act differently again. Who's got a riding sail up? Who's shearing around? Like what happens is that in a lot of anchorages, you end up anchoring way closer together than uh, you really should. You end up anchoring as close together as you might do on a mooring. And a mooring, of course, is a completely different option because there is so much weight, there is so much mechanical grip from that system underwater that it literally has probably only twice the depth of chain um, sitting there. I know with the system I've got on my Open 60 here, there's one depth of the water, which is 40 foot, of one inch chain lying on the seabed. Then there's a leader chain coming up, which is again the depth of the water. So on that mooring, there's only 80 foot of chain, but in 40 foot of water, clearly I'd have a lot more out if I was anchoring. So how much you put out should be based, I'm not going to give you any numbers here that uh, can create any kind of problems, but I would say five times the depth is an absolute minimum, uh, even on chain systems. And when you're on mixed chain and rope systems, you should be on seven times the depth. And that is measuring from the seabed, uh, including the tide to the surface of the water and ignoring the height from the water to the bow roller because you always lower your measured point down to the water. Once it's um, in the water, the anchor is, uh, for many of us, a kind of unseen uh, object then. It's gone. It's out of sight. When it comes time to get it back up, you better hope it's not stuck under some kind of big rock. A lot of people will talk at this point about putting um, a tripping buoy on things. It's a very good idea if you're on your own. Um, what can happen with tripping buoys, a tripping buoy is just a buoy which is um, attached kind of near the head of the anchor, kind of where it digs in. And it's um, got a line which is long enough to come up to the surface of the water and there's a buoy on there. It's all strong enough that you can pull the anchor out if it gets itself stuck behind something. Um, the issue can be is that if you've got, you know, I know say 40 meters of chain out, something like that, and you've got a little buoy which is sitting 40 meters away from you uh, on the end of your anchor, someone can then come along and think that that's a mooring buoy and they're going to pick that up. And it's a bit of a worry when you wake up in the morning, if you're in a situation where you haven't had an anchor watch uh, on deck and discover that somebody is attached to your tripping buoy, <laughs> which is itself attached via like quarter inch something or other to the, to the anchor. So um, the other way of getting anchors out, um, which you should always be aware of and have available, is that you can have a short length of chain with two lines knotted or spliced into the ends of it. And then what you can do is when you start to realize, hey, this anchor ain't coming out, you can uh, drop that 
length of chain probably only needs to be like three or four foot you can drop it down a steeply angled anchor walk which you can create of course by just tensioning with the windlass it drops down right next to the anchor you then let out a lot of warp a lot of chain whatever it is you've got or get your dinghy involved and you go and pull from the opposite direction the opposite direction that you laid the anchor and that will hopefully pull it out of trouble one of the things which I <clears throat> really uh, enjoyed when I was in the Navy is the fact that they had a whole language going backwards and forwards between the bow and the person driving the boat. Obviously, on bigger boats, this becomes a lot more important. You can use electronic methods, you know, have a, a little VHF with you or one of those little um, citizen, no, what are they called? There's like little walkie-talkies that you can get, which are not VHF. I don't know what exactly frequency they're running on, but we use them on board super yachts all the time to um, allow crew to communicate with each other. You can get the Vox systems, which when you talk, it opens the circuit for transmission and then you don't even have to touch it. It's hands-free, very useful for when you're doing uh, docking, mooring, anchoring. But whatever your method is, it's very good to have a clear method of, of describing what's going on. For the normal kind of small groups that are operating on a boat, you can come up with a very nice, simple thing. Someone goes to the bow and they are the person which is monitoring where the anchor is relative to the boat. This could be when you're dropping it, it could be when you're bringing it up. It's most important when you're bringing it up because you kind of need to drive the boat to the anchor. But even when you're dropping it, it's good to have the information. And all you need to do is use your hands like semaphore and just do a clock face around you. You're looking out from the front of the boat. The person that's driving is behind you. You're looking at the anchor chain. If the anchor chain is out to the starboard side, you can use your right hand. If it's at 90 degrees to the center line of the boat, you can put your hand out to the three o'clock position. Obviously, if it's directly ahead, but slightly to starboard, you can bring your hand up like almost directly above you, like you're finishing some big gymnastics display. And if it's ending up going back behind the boat, which is a bit of a problem and a lot of uh, anchor pickup situations, you can bring your hand right down to your right hand side. Uh, that will then allow the person at the back of the boat to make a decision about whether they're running over the chain, whether they're picking up the chain, whether they are in where they want to be relative to the chain without lots of shouting because the issue is that you tend to be looking forward and obviously if you shout while you're looking forward your words just get lost in the wind and we don't want people shouting unnecessarily it looks super professional as well if someone's just putting their hand up what we did in the navy also is that we would describe the uh, attitude of the stay so it would be straight up and down short stay or long stay. So long stay is when you're maybe the anchor's dug in and you're dragging back on the uh, anchor chain on, on your system and it's out at a long angle, um, uh, straight out from the from the boat to the, the furthest position away from you that it's likely to inhabit. It's at the lowest angle it's gonna be. And we describe that as long stay. When it comes and it's at like 45 degrees to the boat and it's at like a, a nice healthy, um, uh, angle from the horse pipe to the water we call that short stay and then when it's straight up and down it's straight up and down and if it's under the hull then uh there's lots of like quizzical looks and uh and jockeying afterwards that you don't know how to drive the boat <laughs> that's my experience um under the hull is the other is the other uh, phrase so you can have a little communication system there um in terms of getting the anchor dug in uh, once you've got it down, you've got the appropriate anchor for the conditions, you put out the appropriate amount of scope. The thing to start to do then is to 
a drive backwards against the anchor. This doesn't really require you to put a huge amount of uh, power on going backwards. As you start to spin a propeller in the water, if it's not able to move the boat, it will just start to ventilate. You'll get such low pressure on the backside of the blades of the propeller that the water will essentially boil, even though it's at water temperature. It will become a vapor. It will become a big ball of white bubbles all around the propeller, and the propeller will be spinning primarily in gas rather than spinning in, in liquid. So it's not gonna have much traction. It can also cause the back of the boat to just squat and lower down and like nothing's happening. So once you've got beyond about mid throttle on most diesel engines, you're just churning water. There's a lot of froth next to the boat. You're pulling, you're pulling hard, but you're not pulling any harder than you would have done if the froth wasn't there. So you pull back against the anchor. <clears throat> you want to be sure if this is this, like, as we said, like type B situation, it's going to be pretty serious. You want to be sure that it's dug in. How do you check to make sure it's dug in? You need to set up a transit. So if there's something that you can look out from the side of the boat and it needs to be the side of the boat so you can see, you can check out a relative change in uh, angle very, very easily. You can do that from the side of the boat. You can't check out relative angle changes from the bow of the boat very easily. But from the side of the boat, looking out, if you can get something that's 90 degrees to you, it's great if you can find like the head of a pier relative to uh, you know another pier in the background or you can find a rock um, sticking out in the water which is lining up with the edge of a cliff in the distance. If you can't do that, it's better to find something on the boat. What I would often do is, is sit down you know, and then look and, and line up a stanchion with something in the distance. Or if you're going to do it on the deck and like line up something, you have to like maintain relative position. That's why it's sometimes better just to sit and you can look at the anchor chain. You can feel the anchor chain. You can feel the trembles coming through it, see if it's skipping. But you can also then line up something on the boat with something in the distance and you can check to make sure the boat's not moving. Obviously, the two points will move relative to each other if the anchor's dragging. If it is dragging, no problem get it back up and go and set it again. <clears throat> Another thing you may want to do though, is instead of trying to set the anchor with, uh, uh, you know, as you start to pull against it, it's going to be long stay. It's going to be coming out from the bow of the boat at a quite a low angle. If it's long stay and it's a short scope, you're tripping the anchor. We're back to those early days of like learning how not to trip the anchor. So it's often better to put out the entire amount of chain that you're expecting or even if you've had problems setting the anchor, put out a lot of chain and then set the angle, anchor with a very horizontal pull from your very long chain and then shorten back up to the relative scope to be considerate for other people that are in the uh, area around you. So there's a few tricks in terms of getting to know your boat that can really, really help. When you're bringing the anchor back in, it's not really a good idea to get the anchor windless to pull you towards the anchor, particularly if it's not, uh, if it's a windy day or there's a lot of waves, what have you, you want to be driving the boat up to it. If you don't have the motor, then you want to be sailing up to it, which you can do. It's tricky and you're going to end up tacking a lot. But again, you can't really pull yourself up to it. These things become very, very apparent when you don't have a windlass and you have to pull the boat in using manpower of crew, which I've had to do a number of times. I remember anchoring when I was training for the clipper race. And uh, as you may well know, in yacht races, it's not illegal to anchor in a yacht race. If that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. That's fine. And we were doing a yacht race in the English Channel, which has got like four knots of flow at high tide and there was no wind. So we anchored <laughs> and we anchored by getting like literally every piece of rope there was on board and uh, tying them all together and then putting the anchor down. And we anchored in 40 meters of water, which is what, like 120 foot. And we put out four times the depth. 
Um, and we did this with Dyneema. So it definitely wasn't the best thing to be using. It's got almost no stretch in it. You always want to be using a nice piece of rope that's got some stretch in it to help with snubbing. And then you, um, you come obviously to a point like you want to get this thing up and get racing again. Now the tide's turned or the wind's come up or whatever it was and hauling that sucker back up. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, I actually had to go and be the person at the front because I was most happy with the fact that if anybody's going to blow their back out, it would be me. So you get very good then at like, okay, and we're going to tack this way and then we're going to spin up towards the anchor and taking all the slack and then secure it and then sail off the other way, basically shearing the boat left and right uh, but using the sails to do it to get the thing uh, unplugged from the bottom. If you've got a powered windlass and you've got an engine, you want to just run, rotate the windlass in. Um, so it's basically just lifting the weight of the chain. And then you want to drive the boat up to the anchor. And again, that um, directional system of having the clock face around you and showing where the anchor is. And if you've driven over it and get it to a position. If you're lifting the anchor chain, if possible, you want to be on short stay or straight up and down, and you want to have it between about 10 o'clock and two o'clock. And then there's not much load on your roller. There's not much load on the uh, windlass. If you get to a point where the boat um, it will not pull the anchor out, what you can do is just go straight up and down and make it quite tight on the windlass, and then just wait and see if the waves will pull it out. If you've got a small boat, you can get all the crew to go to the back and pitch the bow up, and that may pop the anchor out or you get that piece of chain and lower it down the anchor warp or lower it down the anchor chain until you feel you've got a position which is ahead of the anchor, then let out loads of your warp or let out loads of your chain, get the boat positioned in a different orientation to the anchor, pulling on that chain, pulling on that extra line you lower down and see if that's gonna trip the anchor out. So, um, and then the other thing I, we can say is always clean your anchor chain because as it comes up and into the boat, it's bringing a lot of salt water with it. It's bringing salt onto the boat. Salt, of course, is hydroscopic, so it's going to absorb moisture. It's going to keep um, corrosion happening there in your anchor well all the time. Even a galvanized chain in the end will lose its zinc and it's going to end up um, rusting inside the anchor locker, which at the very least is going to be a mess and at the very most can be where you get... Um, pitting and corrosion on the anchor chain, which can seriously affect the strength of the anchor chain. It's worth also at this point, going back to what I said about how much money you put into this, you know, who wants to go and spend like loads of money on an anchor chain? It'd be much more fun to go and buy like a load of uh, wet weather gear or some cool deck gear or a new sail or a chart plotter or a satellite phone, like they're way more interesting. But when push comes to shove, as it normally does, that anchor chain is absolutely key. And it's possible to buy stainless steel chains, which make anchoring a lot easier. They make it easier because um, they don't rust, awesome. They're very slippery, which then means as they go down inside the boat, um, they don't need clearing from that little piled cone pyramid shape that they make in there, which is so difficult. You don't have to go in the anchor locker and push things around. A stainless steel chain will tend to just slide into quite a flat base of chain on its own in the locker, which can make life a lot easier for you. I would just make a note of the fact that there's all sorts of different grades of stainless steel. You've got 316i, 316ti, 316l, you know, all different sorts of um, uh, uh ratings on them and some of the cheaper ratings l uh which would be the equivalent of like a2 i think on the german system 
it's not designed to be underwater in warm conditions. You could go and buy yourself stainless steel fittings in Northern Europe and never experience any kind of problems with them. You take those same components to the Caribbean or to the tropics, which is of course where we all wanna go on these boats if we get our chance. And then that same stainless steel is not rated to be in the water. And even within a month or two months of regular anchoring, long periods spent underwater, a cheap stainless steel chain can end up pitted and end up being a real liability for you. So if you are gonna go for the benefits of a stainless steel chain, which can be multiple, um, make sure it's a high grade of uh, stainless steel that you're getting. And that's when you just have to make the choice to put the money in. Bear in mind also that, you know, it's, um, uh, if you've got a Galvo chain, just replacing it regularly would uh, make sure it stays at the very top of its game. Anchor chain tends to be something that's just disappears out of sight and we don't really deal with it. And then one day, unfortunately, maybe you end up in a situation where, uh, the boat goes on a little jolly of its own because the flipping anchor chain broke. Who could have thought that would happen? Well, actually, you know what? The anchor chain was on the boat when you bought it and the previous guy was in the Caribbean, which was awesome, so many stories, and yet the anchor chain's been exposed to a lot of wear and tear. So um, be cautious that you're putting some money into that and you're really kind of analyzing what's going on. All right, what else can we talk about with anchoring? I don't want to go on too long about this. I think I've started the discussion there. I think I'm going to leave it there, in fact. I think there's a lot to be uh, said based on what we've got already. Um, as I've said before, and many of you have done, which I really appreciate, you've got to write to me. Otherwise, it's just what someone described to me. It's like a madman shouting into a yogurt pot. <laughs> well, maybe not that mad. It's not a yogurt pot. It's a microphone. But if it's just me talking into this microphone sat here in Nova Scotia, it ain't much of a thing. When you write to me, share with me your ideas, share with me your thoughts. Maybe I've got stuff wrong. You know, that's completely fine. Give me the info. Let's find out. The nature of this discussion, just to reiterate, is that I haven't looked at the computer at all. I mean, maybe missed a few facts out there. Maybe got a few things wrong. But if I constantly engage in giving you just super dry facts, I feel like that's going to it's going to do two things. Number one, it's going to give you a false idea of like how much info is in my head, like what you're aspiring to as a professional. Um, and it's also very dry, right? It's tricky to like read notes and unless I'm going to script everything, which I clearly never do. <laughs> so um, that's the kind of stuff that's in my head when I go to anchoring. Write in and tell me if there's other stuff I've forgotten about, other stuff you want me to clarify and go over, we can come back to it. That's not an issue. The other thing we've got to talk about is um, what are we gonna do for B? <laughs> like, can I get a free pass and like B was for batteries, which we already did, because I could super easy go back and change the the title of that <laughs> of that previous podcast, and it'd be like B is for batteries, A is for anchoring, C is for something else. Like, we're pretty much making this up as we go along, so we can maybe do that. I don't have a better B for uh, a, a, an alphabet for, for sailing. So uh, give me your suggestions. What things uh, that begin with B can we go through? It's a weird way to kind of divide up systems, but you come with a better one. What do we do? Start at the front of the boat? Well, okay, B is for bow sprit. We could do that, but is it that important? Do you even have a bow sprit? Maybe we could start at the back of the boat or the inside of the boat or the mast or the, who knows? Are we gonna do it with the alphabet? Why not? So um, if you've got any ideas for what we could do for B, no problem, thank you very much. Um, we will go through the alphabet many times, no doubt, if we've got the information. But I'm, I wanna share with you what's just in my head when I go and do these things. Um, 
and then I will learn from you and uh, maybe give you a realistic idea of, of what it is to be a so-called professional in this area. Um, the other thing I wanted to just quickly address is that a number of people wrote to me and said the volume was low on a couple of the podcasts. Thank you so much for that feedback. It's so important to know these things. Um, I will, I can go in and, and, and actually re-upload the file. So I'll re-edit those and I will put those back on uh, with a, a higher volume level. I'm still getting to grips with exactly how to do all this. I've got a great editing system. If anybody does edit anything for voice, I've been doing video editing and, and editing for all sorts of transmissions from boats for blogs, for around the world stuff for years. I've now settled on using this thing called Hindenburg. It's a bit of a strange name, but it's for journalists. It's not particularly expensive. It is brilliant for editing speech, uh, not maybe the best for music because that's not what it's built for, but it does speech very, very well. And I've just been learning where the levels are at and how it works and clearly made a mistake and, and picked the levels a little bit too low. So I'll go back and correct that. I believe number 29 and 30 are very low, so I'll deal with that. Um, but yeah, any other feedback that you want to throw at me, go for it. And um, I've got some great ideas um, people have um, given to me for some other subjects for our podcast. So I'll bring those up. The next podcast is going to be one of the questions and tangents, <laughs> which people seem to like, which is great by me. We've also got the news and views thing, which is the uh, what's going on in sailing around the world. We've got still people coming in on the Vendee Globe. So we might have a bit of a chat about that. Uh, in the next one. And we've got Slocum. We're halfway through the Slocum book. That's going very well. And I really appreciate some people like me rediscovering that book um, through, thank you know, and, and thank you for, for listening to me reading it. But it's been a joy for me to do it because um, I read it. Sure, whatever. It's like 100 years old. Really, who cares? And then when you get into it, you realize, man, this guy was like, he was way ahead of the curve, both in terms of the way he's revealing himself as a human being and a sailor, and also the fact he's <laughs> sailing solo around the world, and it's like 1895. So lots of excitement there. And I have received in the post another book to read. I think it was my friend, was it Scott? Was that you, Scott Booth, one of our long-term listeners? Um, he sent me a book for me to read. So I got a few on the stocks right now, so I'm excited for that. So um, I wanted to get going again with the podcast. It dried up a little bit in the last couple of weeks as uh, I've started to realize I may not just be a madman shouting to a yogurt pot because the yogurt pot has started sending me emails telling me, hey, where's the shouting? So clearly something's going on. So um, I will get back into this uh, now. I really enjoy doing it. I don't for a second think it's not about that. It's just a lot going on. And I hope that I can bring that to you in the next couple of weeks in the uh, questions and tangents and news and views sections and tell you what's going on. I've got a pretty big announcement, which I think you're going to like. The hint is uh, if you want to go sailing on one of the Spartan boats, but you don't really fancy like how tough that interior is and how basic and like camping like it is, uh, I got a solution for you. <laughs> it's got cushions. So let's see how that goes. But until then, Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, I sincerely hope that you are safe, you are well, you are happy, and that uh, sailing is something which can come to you sooner rather than later, whether it be a little jaunt out uh, through the COVID restrictions or some bigger expedition later in the year. But I hope you've got uh, something on the horizon you can look forward to and that gets you through these dark days uh, with COVID and with winter. So until the next one, I hope you enjoyed that. I'll speak to you soon. Cheers.